0: Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning, Dr. Levin. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. It is December 12th, 2018. Uh, congrats and thanks if you see folks from the Chatting Patient Unit for a successful joint commission visit on Monday uh, to, um, to complete or re, uh, assure about their Construction that went on and uh, creating a psych safe room, so that was a successful. I see Karen from the probably patients
1: and employees. Yeah, well, for pa- yeah,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, patients mostly. So, um, so um, that's a kudos, uh, a thank you, and hopefully many of you who are eligible are receiving in hand. Your um, thank you, your holiday thank you checks that Joanne mentioned in her email and journal recently, that is a physical check. So when you get the paper, don't just assume it's a direct deposit evidence and throw it into the recycling. Um, Take it to the bank and do something good with it. And thank you for... Thank you for all of your efforts, as Joanne mentioned. And a final reminder as a thank you, uh, we'll have a thank you celebration Thursday evening at the Norwich Inn for those who can join us, 5.30, for the department uh, holiday celebration. So hope to see all of you and many more there. Today, uh, our grand round speaker, I get to introduce Dr. Scott Benjamin. So Dr. Benjamin is a, um, he is a, Tulane, initially a Tulane native for both undergraduate and his uh, doctorate degree, his medical degree, and completed actually his internship at Tulane before moving off to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore for both his residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation and the Kennedy Krieger Institute for Fellowship in Pediatric Rehabilitation Medicine. Board certified, started his career at Children's National Medical Center for a year, told me he found Washington, D.C. too expensive, so he made his way to northern New England. He's been at the university. Where it's cheap, right? Where it's less expensive. He's been in Burlington at the University of of Vermont uh, since uh, 2003, and uh, we've been fortunate. He's joined us now two days a month uh, for the past uh, eight or 10 months or so in our clinic working with patients with uh, neuromotor and other physical medicine conditions. So he is a... I believe an associate professor at the University of Vermont School of Medicine. Assistant clinical assistant. We'll promote you, and um, and is now on our faculty. He's going to give us an update. Uh, Hopefully, he's hoping not to be overly comprehensive and and give us some time for questions on cerebral palsy in 2018. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Whoa! (laughs) I like to
1: party, but that was a little weird. my, my voice is okay? You can hear me? <clears throat> all right. So um, thank you um, and welcome. Uh, <clears throat> I have given, again, a bunch of lectures on CP over um, the last 15 years or so, and it was, it was a little hard to decide what was the first grand rounds I would do at Dartmouth. Um, you know, I've done botulinum toxin lectures and spasticity management lectures and all kinds of uh, different things related to CP. So Uh, This was a lecture I'd done a a few years ago that I looked at and felt like it would be reasonably appropriate as a first one. Um, I'm always a little nervous that I'm going to be too basic, uh, but I've come to find that most of the time, because even though I think it's really simple because it's my field, to a lot of people it's actually still a a good review of information that, um, that I think everybody would automatically know, but they don't really. Um, so I'm going to attempt to define cerebral palsy, uh, give some basic classifications, review some uh, imaging that we might see with cerebral palsy, uh, describe the movement problems, and then various treatment options. It's a lot of information. There's about 90 slides. I might skip some um, just to kind of keep things moving. So the definition, I'll, I'll just let you read, but it's a, a permanent disorder um, that affects movement, posture, activity, Uh, can affect um, cognition, um, hearing, vision, um, any various combination or version of those things can present. So you can have somebody who's quite uh, motor impaired, who's cognitively very intact. You can have somebody who's very motor, uh, that's pretty motor able, but has a lot of learning and and cognitive disability, behavioral problems. Um, So when using the term cerebral palsy, it's pretty vague, and uh, it's one of those, kind of garbage can phrases that um, there can be so many different combinations of what cerebral palsy means. And parents will sometimes uh, be scared that you say, you know, your kid has CP and they don't know what that means. It's progressive. They're going to die. So a lot of education early on around um, that that's a very general term. So the goal of this lecture is to teach all of us how to be a little bit more descriptive um, when we're referring to cerebral palsy because it's, it's it's so vast in its presentation. So the lesions themselves with cerebral palsy are static. So it's not a progressive disorder. There was an injury to the brain at some point before, during, or shortly after birth. Um, that are are generally not considered to be progressive in phenomenon. However, the consequences of cerebral palsy and that brain injury can be progressive. So the secondary consequences, musculoskeletal, spasticity, orthopedic. Um, Some of the kids that have uh, hydrocephalus, that can be a complicating progressive issue as well, and, and can cause more brain injury, though the initial lesion is still static. Um, and then kids that present with seizure disorders, which is obviously a much higher incidence um, in cerebral palsy, about 20 times higher. Um, if seizures are poorly controlled, that can lead to more difficult to developmental issues and even regression in development. But again, the initial injury is static. So if you had a bunch of different doctors, uh, advanced care uh, practitioners, looking at a child with cerebral palsy, you might get, a bunch of different versions. Oh, they have spastic quadriplegia. Oh, it's hemiplegia. Oh, it's diplegia. What does that mean? Do they have diplegia with superimposed left hemiplegia? So um, really looking at um, trying to break down what you're truly seeing and, and not just throw a phrase that's not that descriptive. So the motor disorders that come with it can include spasticity, dystonia, mixtures of that, ataxia, combinations of all, arms and legs really stiff, trunk really loose and floppy, particularly early on. So what's the distribution of the findings? Can we describe the movement disorder a little bit more specifically? And then what other issues, uh, including the sensory issues, both tactile sensation, um, hearing, vision, oral motor, Deficits, cognitive, behavioral, as well. So, committee back in the day kind of got together, trying to figure out how to do this. Um, you can refer to those and look those up. Um, so, continuing with classification, so we discussed the motor abnormalities, which for a rehab doctor, uh, that is a large portion of what I address um, with these folks. Accompanying impairments, so uh, feeding issues, bowel and bladder issues. Uh, obviously, uh, continence and constipation and are, are issues that need to be managed. Um, we'll also uh, look at some quick anatomic neuroimaging findings that are not diagnostic of cerebral palsy but are associated with the risk of cerebral palsy. Um, and then causation and, and timing of injury. Um, discussing the, the nature and, and typology of motor disorders, uh, high tone versus low tone, and then, again, the, the various types of movement problems that we can see, uh, including spasticity, ataxia, dystonia, Um Those may be associated with different levels of cognitive impairment as well. For example, choreoathetosis, because it's extrapyramidal and doesn't seem to affect the cortex, they can be severely physically handicapped but very intelligent. And when you look at them, you think that they're very impaired, but the, the lights are shining pretty bright. Um, And then the the functional motor abilities, the extent uh, to which they're limited by their motor function, including oral motor and speech. Uh, The accompanying impairments, um, that can include later developing musculoskeletal problems, hip dislocations, contractures, things that need to be addressed, uh, both from a spasticity management standpoint and um, orthopedically. Um, And then the non-motor issues, uh, which um, I've mentioned So we'll take a look at some anatomic and neuroimaging um, as well. Uh, So parts of the body affected, um, limbs, trunk, face, um, and we'll look at some imaging. So, you know, early on, premature kids, usually they'll get the ultrasounds and they go through the various grades of intraventricular hemorrhage. Um, Those are associated with uh, increasing risk of developing cerebral palsy. So I have met kids that are typical developing who really don't have any significant findings that have had uh, an intraventricular bleed, um, usually a 1 or a 2, and they, they can actually still develop fairly typically. Um, there's uh, increased filling in the ventricle as you get into the, the higher grades. I won't go into too much detail about that. I just wanted you to see some of that stuff. Um, prognosis in 1 and 2 is still pretty good for uh, functional abilities. Uh, but as you get up to uh, grade three, um, they start to have uh, more significant risk of motor impairments, 30 to 40%. Um, and, uh, and grade four, there can be um, a pretty high level of mortality, and um, as much as 90% will have uh, some level of motor disability. Uh, periventricular leukomalacia, again, is not a diagnostic finding. It's an imaging finding. So kids with PVL, this uh, white matter uh, damage around the ventricles, um, are at an increased risk for having motor impairments associated with cerebral palsy. But, uh, again, periventricular leukomalacia isn't a diagnosis of CP. It's an imaging finding. <laughs> Ventriculomegaly can look like hydrocephalus. Um, but basically, it's an enlargement of the ventricles associated with loss of brain parenchyma. So, um, you know, the neuroradiologists will um, be able to tell the difference between those two. Um, when it's truly hydrocephalus, you might see, uh, you know, compression or midline shift. Whereas with just ventricular megaly, you'll see enlargement of the ventricles, but um, otherwise, uh, the imaging can look okay. Um, this is hydrocephalus on, uh, on ultrasound. Um, which uh, appears a little bit different. All right, so clearly identifying the cause. So you can't do that, really. Sometimes there's a, there's a smoking gun. You know, you've got a kid that uh, mom had a lot of hemorrhaging from placenta previa or they had a cord around their neck or there was a kinked cord, and you, you get some sense that this is what happened. Um, even with the premature births, there's questions of whether or not the prematurity led to the cerebral palsy or whether the event that caused the cerebral palsy led to the premature birth. Um, so sometimes and most of the time, you, you really don't know exactly what happened. Um, I'm working on a, a med legal case right now where a kid had uh, your normal jaundice at birth, got treated with lights, went home, and then he spiked to like 39 or 40 and ended up with carnicteris and a brain injury because he had G6PD, and so that's how it happened for them. Um, and he's quite impaired, but smart. Um, so let's go into the motor disorders a little bit more. This is kind of the, the meat and potatoes of, of my work in the office with kids um, that have CP. I do an enormous amount of spasticity management, a lot of injections. Um, spasticity and dystonia, there's been discussions over the years about um, which is what, but in general, spasticity tends to be velocity-dependent, resistant to stretch. This is a board question. Um, and then dystonia tends to be more of a lead pipe phenomenon, where it's kind of a, uh, a steady resistance through the range, both with extensors and uh, flexors, um, where spasticity tends to be more flexor dominant. Um, ataxia is ataxia, um, and then uh, athetosis or choreoathetosis is uh, where the, the tone can actually be fairly normal. Um, the resting muscle tone can be fairly normal, but their movements are very poorly controlled, can be quite exaggerated. And, um, and these are the folks that will frequently have pretty normal intelligence, but are extremely motor impaired. Um, and then, of course, we can have mixtures. So there's the chorioathetosis with some underlying spasticity. If you treat the spasticity, does the chorioathetosis actually get worse? Sometimes we'll treat really vigorous chorioathetosis, even with Botox or Dysport or other botulinum toxins, to reduce the vigorousness of those movements, even though we're not really treating spasticity. And then ataxia, you know, that's, that's a whole other management strategy, but there can also be the underlying spasticity. Uh, So many are are mixed, Um, one type may predominate, um, and then you need to be aware of the various types. So I mentioned, you know, if you treat spasticity, you might bring out more dystonia or choreoathitosis, and that may not help them functionally. And always remember that underneath all of these movement disorders, there's, there's weakness as well. So you'll have the phenomenon where you treat the spasticity, they're looser, but then they're weaker and less functional. So we don't necessarily treat the spasticity just to treat the spasticity. Uh, so distribution, that's self-explanatory. So spastic diplegia, um, so, there's, so here's where the gray areas are. You'll get a patient, they say they have spastic diplegia, and then I'll see them, and I'll think that they have diplegia with a superimposed left hemiplegia. But isn't that triplegia? But, you know, is the other arm also affected? So mostly, we, you know, we, we have fallen into this, uh, this pattern of, of throwing one version out there, um, but we, we want to strive to be a little bit more descriptive so that when you're reading a note, you have some understanding. So we're not going to scrap the old system um, because uh, we can just make it better with a little bit more descriptive. Um, you know, what does CP mean anyway? Basically it means weakness of cerebrum, so that's not a really helpful term. Um, so there's no uniformity. So our goal in, you know, looking at these descriptors, um, looking at distribution is uh, is getting to a place where we can be more descriptive. So don't just say they've got CP, although that's going to happen anyway. Um, in, in our descriptions and our notes with colleagues and um, for families, you know, we would want to be a little bit more specific. Now, that's a bit more verbose. You don't necessarily have to say that every time, and it doesn't have to be in your discharge <laughs> diagnosis list. But... You want to at least describe it so that as somebody's going through the information, they understand what we're talking about. Other descriptive considerations, um, you know, the feeding abnormalities are are usually pretty well known early on if there's a big problem, Um, but then the language issues um, as they develop uh, won't become clear until later. Uh, The motor impairments can be quite severe so that they have all the language in their head, but their mouths and throats work so poorly that they just can't get it out. Um, and then there's a whole array of, you know, true language disorders uh, as well. Um, and um, there's some irony in the fact that the kids with hemiplegia, more like a stroke um, patient, will functionally be quite independent from a motor standpoint, but they tend to have a higher incidence of stroke-like language deficits that, um, that sometimes will not pick up on until a little bit later. And then you can do IQ testing as there getting into school and, and make sure that they're getting the appropriate services as they transition into their education. All right, so measuring function, uh, the, this is another way to describe kind of generally how kids with um, cerebral palsy function motorically. Um, I will acknowledge that I tend to not do this very often. Um, I dictate my notes, so I tend to be very descriptive, and I don't use a lot of just catch uh, catchphrases. But this is uh, this is a good system. Um, I know that uh, Will McKinnon, a pediatric orthopedist who just joined uh, Dartmouth, uses this in his notes. Um, so uh, they've you know they've tested this out. It's pretty reliable. Um, so uh, level one, um, they basically are, are pretty high functioning individuals. Um, I will share this lecture with you all, so you can look back at it. Um, and this this information is is pretty well published. Um, level two, uh, they um, at, at a young age they can walk with some assistance um, and uh, not quite as independent. Level three, um, they are. Uh, keep keep in mind, we're we're talking about the early um, the early ages still. Um, they are, are more impaired. Um, they can maintain some sitting when their back is supported, and they can roll and creep, but they're not getting into quad, and they're not kind of progressing into more upright postures as easily. And um, level four, uh, significantly more impaired overall motor, um, but they're requiring, you know, they can get some head control, but they need support for uh, everything else. And then uh, level five, pretty much dependent for everything. Um, Go through, I, I didn't want to add all of it in there because it's too much, but as they get older, you know, the, the kids um, who are at an age where they would be walking, you know, level one, they're walking maybe with some orthotics. Level two, they're wearing AFOs. Maybe they need some crutches. Level three, they need a walker. Level four, a walker or gait trainer. And then level five, they're wheelchair dependent. Um, so uh, so they remeasure those uh, through through the age groups. Um, And then the manual ability, uh, a similar classification uh, for upper extremity function um, that they measure kids 4 through 18, also fairly well validated. So level one, again, they handle objects easily, um, and uh, they they don't have too much limitation with manual tasks. Uh, They may have some kind of high level fine motor stuff. Level two, they might have some difficulty with pincher. They've got more of a, a gross grasp. Um, certain activities they might uh, avoid because they just can't do it with the fine motor skills. Uh, level three, they um, handle objects with a lot of difficulty, um, but they might need splinting. They might need somebody to hold it there within their reach so that they can get to it. Um, they're going to have some challenges um, if, uh, if they don't have adequate equipment and setup. And then uh, level four, they're really going to need kind of hands, hands-on assist with upper extremity functional activities for feeding. They're going to likely need assistance for, um, you know, age-appropriate self-care. And uh, even with that adaptive equipment, they may only be able to partially achieve goals with hand function. Um, and then level five, they can't do anything. So uh, spasticity um, is a huge part of my practice. Um, I use uh, Disport, Botox, and Myoblock. Uh, The other commercial uh, brand is Xeomin, which just hasn't um, been a a drug that I've used. Um, Disport actually happens to be the only one that has FDA approval for pediatrics. Even though Botox has been around forever, they never got the pediatric um, indication. And they've been in some trouble for marketing off-label, and they've paid some money, and... um, yeah, Allergan has had a little bit of legal trouble with their, their marketing. Um, but it's been safely used for decades now. I mean, when I was a resident back in 1997, they were already doing um, Botox for children at Kennedy Krieger. Um, so uh, taking a look at the um, the pathophysiology of spasticity, which is that increased tone resistance to to stretch, velocity dependent, Um, The alpha motor neurons are excited. uh, The descending inhibitory pathways are impaired. And um, the the 1A intrafusal afferents, it's basically the stretch reflexes. So hyperreflexic, the kids that have the constantly bouncing feet um, called clonus, um, that is kind of this reflex loop that uh, the stretch reflexes are so sensitive, and that can feed into the whole spastic pattern, the dystonic pattern. When they try to move, that stretch reflex gets kicked off and it makes things stiff, and and that's one of the areas that can really impact their ability to move. So when we're treating um, spasticity, um, we're looking at trying to improve the multiple cascades of um, impact that uh, it can have on function and secondary medical issues. Um, Just a quick aside, so this WeMove.org organization in – in my residency at, at Sinai and Johns Hopkins, this WeMove.org was available, wonderful educational website. It had, thing, it had information about Huntington's and Parkinson's and spasticity and cerebral palsy and slide sets that you could download for free, and it was just awesome. And as it turned out, it was a shadow company for Allergan to market their products, um, and they got in big trouble and they had to take the website down. Um, <laughs> But you know, great slides. So I still use them, but I do the disclaimer that we move as a shady organization. <laughs> um, so, uh, so the impact of spasticity, you know, affects kind of everything in in functional life. Um, I have uh, an adult, thirty-eight-year-old man with uh, with cerebral palsy, normal intelligence, who was asking me the other day about trying to find an intimate relationship and. Um, you know, he's really bright, he's really sweet, and he's really impaired-looking, and, you know, he can't talk, and he frauds, and it's, you know, it's just awful. And, and he's this sweet, smart guy who just, you know, relationships are a challenge for him. Um, sleep patterns, nighttime spasticity, pain, all of this stuff figures into it. Um, I've got some teenagers who are pretty high-functioning, but their hand looks, you know, funny, and they want to treat just the hand so that when they're walking, it, it's not up here, it's down at their side. They're not looking for a functional improvement, just they want to change the disfigurement that comes along with the spasticity. So um, along with the spasticity and the underlying motor problems um, is is this concept of muscle imbalance. So uh, flexor predominance or extensor predominance. um, So the flexor spasticity combination that we see um, is uh, is one of the areas that, um, that we manage to try and improve the balance between the muscles. So we might uh, inject flexors so that there's more access to extensors. Um, uh, Remembering, again, there's underlying muscle weakness. So by treating the spasticity either with oral meds or with injections, we might just give them more weakness than is functional for them, and we haven't been helpful. Um, Sometimes our goal is to just reduce risk for muscle contracture, but we also have to be aware of the fact that uh, spasticity management does not, Get rid of contracture. It reduces the risk for forming contracture. It may make it easier to stretch contracture or splint contracture. But it doesn't cure contracture because that's actually an anatomic shortening of the the muscle tendon. So here's kind of what some of these things look like. Again, a nice wee move slide. Um, So adducted internally rotated shoulder, flexed elbow, flexed wrist, flexed fingers. This is probably a completely subluxed wrist. Um, fisted hand, thumb adduction tone, sometimes thumb in palm, um, tightly flexed elbow. These are all things that I treat um, pretty aggressively in the office. Um, I will, I'll say that as I've gotten further in my career, you know, 16, 17 years now, I'm referring for surgery earlier than I used to for some of these things. I would just kind of treat them chronically over and over again and maintain. And then at some point, so, you know, just have plastic surgery, just lengthen all this stuff. Um, and uh, I've been referring more for, uh, for surgical intervention, particularly this longitudinal um, practice with seeing kids that were, you know, six or seven, and I've been seeing them for 10, 12 years, now they're teenagers. It's like, are we going to keep doing Botox forever? Go have some surgery and, and you're done growing. Um, so the timing of some of the surgeries as they get older um, to, to try and treat some of the, the contracture formations. Um, so, oral medications that we would use to treat spasticity includes this whole list. Um, I, In the little kids, I do tend to shy away from it in general. I will inject them before I will give them um, oral spasticity medications unless they are really stiff all over um, because of the obvious things, the sedation, the increased trunk weakness, the clouding of their cognition as they're trying to still develop early skills. So. Um, so my style of practice is I, I tend to stay away from the oral medications when they're younger, unless it's one of those really kind of combined spastic dystonic kids that are rigid all the time and uncomfortable. And then I'll I'll usually throw a little um, benzodiazepines at them first, add some baclofen, um, and then of course now we have the the cure all um, with the cannabinoids. So, um, you know the downsides. Uh, so. There's long-acting, short-acting. Most of the time, we'll start with Valium. For some of the really more complicated, miserable, stiff, anxious, sweaty, autonomic dysfunction kids, uh, I like Clonopin because it's just a little stronger and lasts longer. Um, It works through brainstem and spinal cord mechanisms, working through the GABA system. Um, Obviously, we know what the adverse effects are. It's pretty commonly understood. Pretty safe drug. I mean, we know that you know, if you're just on benzos, it's pretty hard to truly overdose somebody, um, but we still are careful with our, our pediatric population. <clears throat> uh, oral baclofen you know, it works through a similar mechanism as the benzodiazepines do um, to uh, to reduce overall tone. Um, dantrium works differently because it tends to be calcium in the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Um, so uh, the excitatory signals are still going down, but it uncouples it from the actual motor contraction. It's a nice adjunctive agent um, to use with the other ones because it's a different pathway. Um, There's a little more risk of weakness with the dantrium. Uh, There's been some uh, history of of liver concerns with dantrium, so you want to measure liver functions and um, check them a couple of times after initiating it, Um, but it, it can be a nice secondary drug. Tizanidine is also one that uh, we use um, pretty frequently. Uh, a lot of times, I'll use this on older patients that also have a fair amount of pain because it can have some antinociceptive effects as well. Um, and yes, there are people who are on a little bit of baclofen and a little bit of tizanidine, and they get Botox or Dysport injections, and um, and you combine some of these uh, these treatments for the really severe tone problems. <clears throat> well, you can't really see that very well. So a lot of the kids will be on uh, clonidine as kind of a combo, <coughs> sleep medicine, reduce, uh, reduce their, their tone, kids that have a little bit of autonomic um, instability with the really severe um, brain injuries. Um, I don't tend to use a lot of this, but I'll see that uh, not uncommonly pediatricians or neurologists will have already put them on clonidine, and then we can add other things as secondary agents. So here's all the, the in- injection options. Phenol, which was used a lot more before the botulinum toxins came around. These are the commercially available brands. I use a lot of Dysport because it's got the FDA approval um, for kids. So just kind of from a med-legal standpoint, um, it's a good choice. I still do a lot of Botox. I've got a couple kids on Myoblock, and I haven't really used them, and um, they're temporary. So parents want to know, you know, I'm going to do the shots with my kids, sometimes under anesthesia. How many times are we going to do this? So it's roughly every three months or so, and you're committing uh, to uh, you know, these visits every three months with kids who know they're going to get stuck every three months. Most of them do okay. Some of them are you know not, um, not that tolerant, and I do probably about a dozen kids under anesthesia, but the rest are in the office. Um, phenol can have some sensory complications, um, so we're a little bit limited in where we can inject it, um, you know, but honestly, botulinum toxins, it's pretty easy. You could, you know, you could train almost anybody to do it with some, uh, with some time. Um, phenol is a little bit more technically difficult. Um, I will always use anesthesia for phenol. Um, phenol is really cheap. You could fill this room with phenol for the cost of a couple vials of Botox probably. Um, but uh, you can only use it in a couple places, really. So phenol basically demyelinates um, the, the nerve and causes a conduction block. Uh, It works well for the obturator nerves, for the inner thigh. Inner thigh tone is a big management challenge for hip dysplasia, hip dislocations, ambulation. um, And it only has a very little sensory component, so just a patch of skin on the inner thigh. So if you get some numbness there, it's not functionally a big deal. If you were to try and do other mixed nerves, you're much more at risk for combined sensory impairments, so you wouldn't use phenol for other stuff. Um, Musculocutaneous nerve for uh, really tight elbow flexors is also good because musculocutaneous nerve um, has only a small patch on the lateral forearm as its terminal branch for for sensation. Um, And there's, you know, there's side effects with phenol. The the most common is is dysesthesias, and I have had some patients that um, had moderate dysesthesias from the injections and dysesthesias and other distributions than the nerve I injected because the volume was a little too much and we demyelinated other things. And so I I use phenol pretty sparingly. Um, So botulinum toxin um, is the most potent uh, bacterial neurotoxin on the planet, I guess. Um, It uh, blocks release of acetylcholine. Through a couple of different mechanisms, depending on which type it is, but ultimately the end result is it it stops some proteins from attaching to the neurolemma, and therefore acetylcholine is not released into the synapse, and it reduces the muscle contraction. Um, There's not a whole whoops. There's not a whole lot of uh, actual poisonings with botulinum toxin from food sources in the country, Um, and really the efficacy is uh, the uh, safety is is quite high. You can go on the Internet, you can find bad stories about me, and you can find bad stories about other doctors that have done horrible things with Botox to children. Um, Most of that's, you know, fake news, right? Um, But uh, the incidence of of true botulism poisoning from these treatments is extremely low. Um, So the musculoskeletal goals are, you know, increased function um, is is always the loftiest goal. We want to make them more functional. But sometimes it's really just to... Uh, prevent contractors, um, improve uh, fitting of bracing, making it easier to diaper and hygiene. You know, armpits are hard to get to. You'd be amazed at how smelly a contracted hand can be. It's about, like, the worst smell ever. G-tubes and stomas, forget it. Contracted hand, the worst. Um, and so those are those are important goals, even if we're not improving function. Um, needing two people to abduct hips to do diapering and hygiene, if you can change that so one person can do it easily, you've really helped, um, even though you're not changing the function of the individual. So, you know, it's been well studied. It works. We know it works. Um, so, I've discussed some of this already. Um, so, we're looking for spasticity that interferes. Just because it's there doesn't mean we need to treat it, it might be helpful. If you've got uh, spasticity in your quadriceps and you're able to walk on that spastic leg and you reduce the spasticity in that quad, now your knee gives out and you can't walk, and that wasn't helpful. Um, There's uh, a couple of areas where causing too much weakness really is a functional problem. Kids and adults that I take care of with finger flexor tightness, they can open real slow. They can grasp weakly and we do the injections they can open their hand more easily but they've lost grip strength and they're not happy they'd rather have the spasticity and the grip strength fortunately we know these treatments are temporary so we haven't caused any big problem um, i have one woman i see does not cp she got a, an ulnar dystonia in her hand and she's a concert pianist and so i very very carefully treated her flexors and she reports about 2 weeks of weakness that impact her her playing ability but then she gets in like this sweet spot of two months uh, to three months where she can play like she used to. Um, That was really rewarding. Um, So all these kids are generally getting ongoing therapies during all these treatments. Um, They will have uh, AFOs and splinting. Um, They're getting school-based therapies. Uh, They will will also have uh, medical therapies outside of the school. School-based therapies are to make sure they gain access to their academic environment. So the school may not work on certain things if it doesn't really impact their their educability. Um, And then we might have them in additional therapies outside. Um, Before they're three years old, they'll usually get home-based therapies. They'll transition into the school model, and then they'll also get some outpatient if it's appropriate. Lots of equipment, particularly for our our uh, higher-level impairments. Um, So surgical options, I'll I'll kind of breeze through a little bit. Um, Dr. David Bauer uh, does the rhizotomies and the intrathecal baclofen pumps. Um, Since he kind of came around several years ago, I have been referring more and more patients for those procedures uh, than when I first got to UVM where there wasn't really anybody uh, particularly gung-ho to do it. Um, So I'm meeting kids now where... um, when they're much younger, I'm thinking about surgery sooner than I used to. Um, the, from, a, from a business model standpoint, as a practitioner, most of the kids that get rhizotomies still actually benefit from some kind of injections, so it's not like I'm giving my patients away. Um, the injections tend to be a little bit more selective and maybe not as uh, spread out. Um, Intrasecal back within pumps, you know the little kids, big pump, so we, we want them to be of a certain size, but for the kids with really severe spasticity, Um, You know, I can't inject everything uh, because you end up spreading the dose out too thin and it's not that effective. So if you've just got super high tone in the lower extremities, um, the pumps can be helpful. Orthopedic surgery is not for spasticity. It's for the contractures related um, to the spasticity as as a secondary musculoskeletal consequence. So rhizotomy, um, I don't know if, if Dr. Bauer has ever given a lecture about that. Um, but you're basically cutting the um, the sensory fibers um, on the dorsal part of the, the cord um, percentage-wise. So usually it'll be like 25%, and then as you get lower, you might go up to like 75% of those rootlets to reduce the spasticity. A lot of guidance while you're doing it. And this permanently reduces tone. There's a long recovery afterwards, a lot of weakness. Initially, the criteria um, used to be... Uh, Kind of this pure spasticity, strong, kids who can walk, but, you know, spastic diplegia tend to be the premature kids with pure spasticity, not mixed movement. But as time has gone on, um, the, the reality is that kids who are less functional, kids who are more spastic and less likely to ambulate, they can still benefit from this because it's a permanent improvement in their lower extremity spasticity. Even if it's not, again, for a functional improvement, it can reduce a lot of the burdens of that spasticity. So uh, So I know that uh, David uh, Bauer and I have have been seeing kids and referring kids more at it um, uh, that have more severe spasticity than we used to when it was kind of the, the GMFS uh, kids who were like two and three who could walk with equipment and braces, and we were going to make that better. So um, the orthopedic surgeries' three major goals uh, are to improve muscle. Um, imbalance. Uh, one of the typical surgeries is a split tibialis anterior tendon transfer. So the dorsiflexor of the foot attaches medially. They'll split it, put half of it laterally and then when that muscle in, uh, engages, the foot won't roll in as much. It'll be more in midline. So that's one of the ways to improve balance. Um, prevent bony deformity. So in the hips in particular, um, adductor releases, hamstring releases, um, and uh, flexor releases to reduce the spasticity that's, that's literally kind of pulling that hip up out of the socket. Um, so I'll do uh, injections for those muscle groups, but if they're progressing into dysplasia or subluxation despite those injections, um, I will uh, refer them for orthopedic intervention sooner. And then correct bony deformity um, is uh, looking at um, femoral derotational osteotomies, cut the femur, rotate the femoral head back into the socket, sometimes build up the acetabulum and um, and get things back in place. Um, tibial torsion, where the tibia rotates usually inward, but sometimes outward, cut the tibia, rotate it out, get things in better alignment so that it doesn't feed into other kinetic movement problems. Um, then there's just the, you know, the, the, the lengthening surgeries, a lot of Achilles tendon lengthenings are very common in the cerebral palsy population because they develop plantar flexion contractures, hamstring uh, releases, um, some of these other um, bony uh, surgeries that I mentioned. Um, There's one boy that I've taken care of for years who just under, and he had a terrible, terrible crouched gait. He was really low, like down at 45, 50 degrees. Um, you don't want to lengthen that hamstring too much because then it's too weak. So he got a hamstring lengthening with a distal femoral lengthening osteotomy, where they, where they cut uh, you know, kind of a pie shape out. They actually rotate the condyle back into an anatomic position so that the knee gets fully extended. And we've been waiting years to do this for this kid. And he had it done a few months ago, and now he's like standing up straight. He's not crouched anymore. Um, and it was a beautiful orthopedic intervention, nothing that I could accomplish, for sure. Um, sometimes they'll fuse a joint really bad. Um, ankles, uh, they might fuse. Later in life, some of these folks will get horrible arthritic problems, um, and uh, and doing joint fusions might be appropriate. All right, so that's a lot of information, I know. Um, so the the keys to successful intervention with all of these things, so spasticity, injections, oral meds surgery, pumps, all of this stuff, is defining the patient's goals. What do they want to do? So I can make, like I said, a wrist and a hand looser. But this one boy came and he's like, please don't inject me again. I said, why? He said, because my, I can't use my hand. It's looser. I can't use it. So define their goals. What do they want to be able to do? Well, then define the potential. You know, I want to be able to walk like my brother or sister. Yeah, so we can, we can do some stuff, but um, you have to meet in the middle. Um, Define the the actual functional problem. So uh, again, spasticity management um, shouldn't be just because it's there. You might actually worsen function. So uh, we want to understand what the functional problem is and and choose the right treatment for it. And then understand the limitations of the treatment. So, you know, injections are temporary. If they're looking for something more permanent and they really don't want to do Botox because it's poison, um, then you think about what other strategies uh, you can use for them. Uh, decisions to treat um so you know that's uh that's surgical considerations you know degree of contracture um can uh can they use the joint within a functional range um and do we believe that surgery will improve the natural history of um of progression uh, of disability mm-hmm. kind of talked about this. Already, um, some, some of these slides are redundant-ish. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> this is an old-school splint. I don't even know if they still use stuff exactly like that anymore, but that was kind of your, your typical aton brace after adductor releases, hamstring releases, hip flexor releases, Achilles releases. You would end up in this thing for a little while. Uh, tendon transfers I kind of talked about already. Um, they We do have... Uh, I don't know if anybody here is doing this kind of stuff. Donald Lobb, who was at UVM and um, left under a, a cloud of oppression, um, does, uh, does spasticity stuff um, in the upper extremity. So um, wrist flexor releases, tendon transfers, um, finger flexor releases. Uh, so I know I talk a lot about the lower extremities, but there's uh, also upper extremity orthopedic interventions that can be appropriate, though they're a little less common. Uh, we talked about some of the bony surgeries, the tibial fibular osteotomies, varisty rotational, calcaneal. Not very often, but they're, they're in there where they'll do a wedge in the calcaneus to tip that back into alignment as well. Uh, so, all right, they used to be pretty aggressive um, orthopedically, and they would over-lengthen. And then the antagonistic muscle would take over, and you would end up causing the exact opposite Problem. So as the years have gone on, orthopedists are are more uh, careful to not over-lengthen. Sometimes they'll under-lengthen with the expectation that they'll have to lengthen again, but they'd rather do that than really blow it. Um, And then uh, one of the other things with orthopedic intervention is that they used to do surgeries for things like chorioathetosis, and that went really badly because um, you would end up with a, a worsening movement disorder if you try to lengthen a muscle in somebody who's not really spastic or dystonic. Uh, intrathecal baclofen, um, Dr. Bauer is doing that stuff here as well. You can get a much higher concentration in the spinal cord um, uh, fluids than when you're taking it orally. Um, and uh, I again, for the really more severe spastic population, I'm referring them earlier than I used to just as I as I continue to grow in my own practice. Um, it, uh, it's highly programmable, um, it, uh, and it's, it's pretty effective. Um, it can help with trunk. Can't really help with arms too much, because by the time you get uh, baclofen up that high, you're starting to get at risk for <clears throat> respiratory suppression and sedation. So it's generally bathing kind of the lower uh, half of the, the spinal fluid and affecting the legs. Uh, side effects. Um, so you got an implanted device that can have its own, its own problems. The pumps work really well. Most of the time, if there's a complication, it's a catheter complication. They can overdose. There's risk for death. <clears throat> All right. Yeah, with everything, right? You woke up today, risk for death. All right, so that was a lot of information. Um, so in summary, you can see that there's a lot of different providers involved. Um, it includes the therapists, it includes the families, it includes surgeons and me and other people. Um, we really want to have clear goals for what we're doing. Otherwise, we just kind of get caught in this uh, medical business mill of doing the same things over and over again, like, uh, you know, spine injections. Um, and uh, spasticity whoops, sorry. Spasticity may be helpful, so we don't want to get rid of it just because it's there. Um, we don't want to treat it for the sake thereof. Uh, socioeconomic issues I did not talk about, but I've got patients that live four hours away. Everybody here is familiar with, with these folks. So, uh, you know, if I'm going to start doing injections and they're showing up once every eight months and they cancel and there's snow, is that going to really be a useful thing to get involved with? Put a pump in somebody who lives really far, there's a complication, their ear doesn't have a clue. Um, is that an appropriate patient? Um, so, unfortunately, you know that's part of the decision-making process as well. Um, and then uh, these, in the kids, these are almost always in conjunction with the therapists who are working with them. At some point, these kids get to a steady state. Therapists don't feel like they have goals. We're still managing these secondary consequences of their CP. Um, but uh, the therapists, um, particularly in the children, are are a, a long-term part of the uh, the picture. I mean, that's the PT, OT, speech. Early education, uh, the eye team, visually impaired uh, services, all that stuff. Okay, that's a lot. That a lot. All right, I did leave some time for questions.
2: Question? Yeah. Scott, oh, that was great. Um, it sounds like a lot of people come to you
0: highly motivated, they
2: have a specific problem they want to address, and that um, kind of speeds the process. You must also have the opposite, where you refer a family that really doesn't have the wherewithal and maybe they're not even invested in what potential health could be. How do you work with
0: that?
1: Yeah. I mean, education, basically. Um, you know, I've got some families that are, you know, just dead set against medication, dead set against uh, Botox, um, and they, you know, they do their own thing. And uh, I've got some families who... Are really hands on, they do tons of stretching, they're really involved in their kids' care, and even without some of the things that I might provide, those kids do okay. Um, I've got, and then there's some kids that I look at and I meet them when they're seven, and if I had met them when they were two or three, I feel like they would be a vastly different kid. You know, they wouldn't have the contractors that they have. Um, I've got one boy, he's 19, he's from Somalia. Um, really bright, beautiful kid. Arms work pretty good. He's smart, and his legs are just trashed. And he's got, you know, dislocated hips, really severe knee contractures. His feet are fully plantar flexed and inverted. If I had met him when, you know, when he was three, he'd be walking. Um, so that's kind of an extreme case because he was in, um, you know, he was in a third world country. Um, but you know, it's education. Here's what we can do. Um, here's what might happen, kind of natural history of this stuff, and then you, you do what they say. So, yeah. Yes? So, you know, if, if you know they've got uh, significant neurological injury and impairment, uh, you know, I'll see them as, as young as can be. Um, so, you know, it's not uncommon for me to start seeing these kids three or four months of age when um, when they should start to be doing some stuff. Um, so, yeah, and, and I've been here a long time, and every once in a while I'll be surprised that I'll meet a kid when they're seven and their pediatrician knows me and I've got their patients, and I'm like, why, it's your seven. Why didn't you get here four years ago? Um, so I'll see them as as young as, as can be if it's clear that they're going to have motor impairments. Yeah, Sometimes there's one doctor in Saranac Lake will, who, who continually sends me normal children um, <laughs> who are walking and they're, you know, they're 13 months old and their feet turn in when they're walking. and um, So that's on the other extreme. Um, but I also met an 11-month-old girl who was from Saranac Lake, New York, who had congenital hip dislocations that were missed on x-ray, missed by her pediatrician, and now she needed surgery. So, um, so but you can send them pretty young.
0: Yeah.
1: It seems to me, uh, one thing I'm confused about is that you're treating the spasticity, rigidity before, usually before you would send the patient to orthopedic surgery because they've developed contractors and all this other stuff. Yes. They do the surgery. Yes. What prevents it from just going back to... What it was before? So the spasticity management continues. Um, so the splinting will continue. Um, and just because they've had an Achilles tendon lengthening doesn't mean that they won't still get botulinum toxin injections or stop using their AFOs. So, um, you know, the, the musculoskeletal consequences will get to a certain point where just treating the spasticity is no longer adequate. So you do the surgery to get the range of motion back, to get the muscle length back, but you still have to treat the spasticity. But you were treating the spasticity before. Sure. And it occurred. So yes. now you're, you have the surgery, you're treating the spasticity again. Why, do, why don't the same problems
0: occur again?
1: Well, they can. Um, you know, it's uh, that's why it's chronic long-term management. Um, most of the time, folks will need... Um, Folks will need one or two surgeries if they're really severe, two lengthening procedures. Um, you know, sometimes one when they're a little younger, one subsequently. Um, you know, once you do that orthopedic intervention and, and lengthen the the musculotendinous uh, anatomy, um, if you're maintaining uh, bracing and spasticity management, they're less likely to recur than um, before that initial surgery when um, when you haven't anatomically just lengthened the structure. Um, but the, the folks that disappear, don't wear their splints, come back to me as 38-year-olds, 40-year-olds. Um, they certainly have had recurrence. Um, but once you've changed that anatomic lengthening, it's, it's generally easier to maintain it than, um, than prior to surgery. Yes.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I'm a general pediatrician, and so I work a lot with the physical therapists and talk a lot with them. Um, And I've struggled, I can think of two patients off the top of my head, one from about 10 years ago and one that I'm still working with, um, one of whom the physical therapist wasn't covered because they couldn't get back to baseline function. I'm like, I don't understand, I can't argue with that. They're not going to get back to baseline function because they have functional impairment. And the other one is currently in one of our local elementary schools and can't get physical therapy through school because... um, they don't have stairs in the school. Therefore, he is mobile enough right. to get to his classroom. Right. And I have argued with the school, and to no avail to get him his physical therapy. He, gets, he goes down to Boston every six months to get phenol and Botox in, mm-hmm. and that seems to be okay. But right. I can't get the local therapist. So
1: the, so the school model of therapy what, that you're describing, they're not completely off base because if they can access their classroom... Uh, they've got their mobility device and they can get to where they need to go, then school-based therapies may not be appropriate for them. Not that it wouldn't be helpful. It would be helpful. Um, But in that situation, because of the model of school-based therapies, you you do need to look outside of the school for therapies. Um, So, you know, outpatient um, physical therapy in that case should be covered by insurance. Um, One quick thing that I'll mention is, you know, this argument about uh, being able to document ongoing progress in order to justify. Now, there was a case, um, Jimmo versus Sibelius, where uh, they sued Medicare to cover <laughs> maintenance therapy. Not just maintenance therapy, but therapy that without it um, the patient might regress. So, um, so there, is actually, uh, there is actually court precedent to argue for maintenance therapy, even if they're mo- not making progress. And it's, even though it was a Medicare case, if it's a Medicaid patient, Medicaid will frequently follow you know, the Medicare guidelines. So you can, you can make a pretty good legal argument. Um, but yeah, so in that situation where the school's like, they don't need more access to their academic environment, th- then they would go to outpatient, which of course pediatric outpatient services are all over the place in this region, right? Yeah.
2: I don't believe we have one at our institution. Good.
1: Anybody else?
2: I think, uh, We've done it. I certainly can come down and okay. continue the conversation. Thank you, Thank
0: you all.